Welcome to the Single Lady Estates podcast. My name is Bobby Wasserman, and I'm the founder of Single Lady Estates. Thank you for spending some of your time with us. This season, we are all about advocacy. From having the confidence to advocate for changes at local, state, or federal levels, to fighting for what you know is right in court. Today, we are getting personal with a discussion on matrimonial law. According to World Population Review, in the United States, between 35 and 50% of first-time marriages end in divorce, increasing to approximately 60% for second marriages and 70-plus percent for marriages after the second. That is a lot of potential lifestyle changes for some, and maybe not so many for others. Whatever life road you take, this episode is presenting a pragmatic approach to marriage and partnership with the idea of women needing to be in a strong position to advocate for themselves. Hopefully, we'll offer some new ideas or maybe spark some ideas to move forward on other issues with. We are all on a life journey, so let's be smart about it. I am thrilled to introduce you to Lisa Ziderman, managing partner of Miller Ziderman LLP. Lisa is a certified divorce financial analyst and certified financial litigator known for her work on complex litigation regarding financial and custody divorce matters, as well as pre and post nuptial agreements in New York City and Westchester County. Lisa is widely recognized by her peers, clients, and the legal industry through notable recognitions, including Crane's New York Business Notable Woman Lawyer for 2022, Crane's New York Notable Diverse Lawyer for 2022, Hudson Valley Best Lawyer in 2022 and 2021, Best Family Law Attorney for Client Satisfaction by the American Institute of Family Law Attorneys, and Super Lawyer in Family Law for 2020, 2021, and 2022. She also maintains a 10 rating on AVO, which is a widely used consumer platform matching consumers to attorneys. So basically, she really knows her stuff. I do want to just note that this podcast is a broad discussion and not legal advice. Laws vary from state to state. If you need a lawyer, go find one in the state that you live. So thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me, Bobby. Thrilled to be here. So here's a fun fact that I'd love for everyone to know. Prior to law, Lisa also owned a business within the fashion industry, which explains quite honestly her great headshot outfits. So Lisa, I'd first love for you to talk about your background and what led you not only to law, but to matrimonial and family law. So Bobby, I've always been very entrepreneurial. And when I came out of high school, I decided to go into the fashion business and then decided that I was actually going to open my own business and did that for several years. I had been married and running my own business and then went through my own divorce. And during my divorce, I decided that I really wanted to make a change and I wanted to make a change into matrimonial law, believe it or not. (laughs) And I decided that I was going to go back to college and actually to law school and was very focused on the practice of matrimonial law at the time. And when I came out, it's exactly what I ended up doing was actually starting as a matrimonial attorney. 
my hunch is, is that something happened in your divorce that you're like, I want to help other women. I was just kind of curious if you were able to kind of pinpoint that turning point for you. So I think there were a couple of things that happened in my divorce. I realized that divorce is very, very stressful and that you really need an attorney who can call you back, be responsive, and that most of the issues as you go through a divorce, if they are dealt with promptly, and if you are being serviced by an attorney who is responsive to you, that most of the issues can actually be dealt with very simply. And I really wasn't getting that service. I think in a lot of places, matrimonial attorneys, they have a lot of clients and they can't necessarily service them. And I really wanted to be that attorney. Having been in a business that was also service oriented, I knew that you needed to service your clients. And so I felt like I could really do that. I also really liked the financial aspects that were part of matrimonial law. So for example, valuations of businesses, figuring out some of the complex litigation issues in terms of working with a forensic accountant, in terms of a lifestyle analysis, all of those parts. And I really did like the concept of being able to cross-examine, being able to write outlines for testimony. And so there were a lot of different parts of it that I really enjoyed, even though, unfortunately, it was my own divorce. (laughs) Well, it also sounds, being an entrepreneur, it's like going through the financials of a business. So it sounds actually pretty interesting. Yes. I believe that I'm a strong negotiator, and I believe that the strength of my negotiation comes to my background of being able to negotiate with retailers across the country. I really felt like I could bring to the table those negotiation skills at a settlement table, and I'm able to do that. And although they are not the same issues, they are still negotiation. Yeah, I totally get it. And you're also dealing, Lisa, with people in very emotional states, you know, as a matrimonial attorney. I'm so thrilled to have the opportunity to speak about this highly emotional subject in a discussion format, which will allow us to be much more pragmatic. And hopefully people are jotting down some notes as we speak. Can you walk us through when people should think about engaging a matrimonial attorney versus when they actually do? So I think that people should start to think about engaging a matrimonial attorney when they're becoming unhappy in their marriage. And to me, and I know I have a very high bar, I'm married for the second time. And when I wake up in the morning, I look over to my husband. I think to myself, I'm the luckiest person in the world to be married to him. Now, if on the other hand, I looked over to him and I thought, I really don't want to see him today or I don't want to speak to him. And that that is a repetitive feeling that I had then I think it's time to get out because the fact is that life is very, very short. I also think that if somebody is abusive to you or controlling in a way that is abusive, so for example, if you don't have access to the information about finances, if someone is physically abusive to you, if someone is emotionally abusive to you, I can't imagine living in that situation, but so many women live in that situation And they really shouldn't have to do that. And so I think that's certainly a time that people need to start to think about getting out. So when it comes to getting a matrimonial lawyer, who is usually the first to engage your services? So I represent both male and female. I represent someone who is actually 
looking to get divorced or has custody issues or needs orders of protection or actually wants to enter into prenuptial or postnuptial agreements. And we certainly represent all different genders. Who's usually the one that will say, I don't want to look at my partner anymore in a traditional marriage? Right. So I don't think that's gender specific. Oh. I, I think that in any marriage, I think that there are men, women who decide it isn't working for them. And you'd be surprised to see that men sometimes feel like they really are being controlled by their spouse. Women also feel that way. And I think generally when one spouse is unhappy, usually the other spouse is also unhappy. However, it may be that the other spouse isn't ready to leave the marriage. Got it. Let's dive into prenups. What is the sign of a healthy relationship when it comes to prenups and what are some red flags? So I think that the signs of a healthy relationship really are when you and your soon-to-be spouse have discussed the prenup, have discussed it well in advance of the marriage, have discussed the terms of the prenup, and have come to an agreement on what those terms are going to be. I think, on the other hand, the sign of an unhealthy relationship is when the client comes to me with the drafted prenup four weeks, two weeks, one week prior to the marriage and says, I have to sign this prenup. I really don't know what it says. I didn't know I was going to actually be entering into a prenup, but he or she gave me this prenuptial agreement to sign. Their lawyer drafted it, and I just need somebody to review it, which means that likely the invitations have been sent. Mm. The guests have made all of their reservations. The venue is picked. The flowers have been ordered. <laughs> the band has been booked, right? And now you've got this prenup, and you are feeling all the pressure of having to sign something that may not be appropriate for you to sign. That is the sign of an unhealthy relationship, and that is a sign of a prenup that you should not sign. And for the people that come to you in that situation, how many actually go through with the marriage? There are several who have gone through with that marriage, and some who have come back and said, you know, you were right, can you actually set aside the prenup? And I have said no. I can't set aside the prenup. There have been people who have come to me who have had those types of prenups drafted by other attorneys, and they come to me with those prenups in their hands, and they say, well, I signed away my right to spousal support, my right away to equitable distribution. I basically have nothing now. Wow. And they look at me, and the fact is that they were well advised, usually, by attorneys not to sign those prenuptial agreements which makes it even more difficult to set aside those prenuptial agreements because they knew what they were getting into. And so it is very difficult to set aside agreements that you are actually entering into voluntarily, and you really need to think about that. Prenups are great when they are negotiated, when they are transparent, when you actually have thought about the terms and worked them out. They are a fabulous way to start a marriage, and I really do believe that. But if one party is being controlling and one party is really not giving you the opportunity to negotiate, you have to think about what is that going to be like in my marriage? You know, I'm curious if there are any differences by generations. Are you seeing anything different from millennials versus boomers? Yes. Ah. Yes, I am. So here's what I am seeing. For the younger generation, what I am starting to see is prenups that are very straightforward 
where each party is going to be keeping his or her assets. And that is very different than prenups for someone who is actually a bit older. I am seeing people who are going to have dual careers or they believe that they're going to have dual careers and they are not afraid to enter into prenuptial agreements where I'm keeping my assets and you're going to keep your assets and we're going to have one joint bank account where we share the expenses and we're both going to waive spousal maintenance and we're not going to worry about supporting the other person financially because although this is a financial partnership, each of you need to be doing your own part here. And that is a very different type of prenup than I used to see years ago. Well, it sounds like it's healthier. In some ways, I think it is healthier because everybody is on the same page and understands what is going to happen in the future. I think that they have to be open during a marriage, however, to renegotiating that prenup or entering into a postnuptial agreement. And I say that because things change in a marriage. Right? Somebody may, for example, decide that they want to be a stay-at-home parent, and the other person may agree that there should be a stay-at-home parent. Somebody may decide that they want to be the person who just wants a spouse who is supportive of their career, and they're happy to support the other person as long as that person, frankly, is doing the organizing of the household and making sure that everything is set up so that person can focus on the career. Those are great areas to renegotiate prenups and enter into postups, but be prepared to have those serious negotiations. Because what I also see is so many people, particularly women, come to me for the first time 20 and 25 years later who are getting divorced and who were told that they would actually be taken care of. And now they are finding themselves either wanting to get divorced or actually being served with papers for a divorce. And they haven't worked and they haven't been out in the workforce. And so they have given up that ability to earn those substantial earnings for the rest of their lives. And those people, particularly those women, should be negotiating prenups or postnups that actually account for them to stay home and support their spouses. In your experience, do you see people actually doing this? I don't see it enough is the answer. I see it rarely. We really counsel people to think about this, but I rarely see it because I think people just can't think that far ahead. What I do see, unfortunately, is these people who have given up all of this earning potential because when you are out of the workforce for so many years, you are not likely to catch up. You can't catch up for those 10, 15, or 20 years. And yet when you are asking for the spousal support to cover your lifestyle, you also may not be entitled to that in the longer run. And so it really is something that people need to think about and they need to think long and hard before they remove themselves from the workforce. So going back to these red flags, which you just uh, gave us another slew of, how do you protect yourself from the red flags? even if you cannot undo some of these agreements? Well, you can always undo, right? You can always literally say, this isn't working for me. If we can't renegotiate or negotiate something, if I can't feel protected in this marriage, if we can't be transparent about the finances, if we don't account for the fact that I am going to be staying home, for example, and taking care of the children, then these things can't happen. 
and we may need to actually end this marriage. Don't get yourselves into a situation where it's 15 years later that you're having that conversation. The sooner, the better to have that conversation. Yeah, that's for sure. In a prenup, are there assets that are, I want to say, like to be acquired that you can protect in a prenup? For example, if you were starting a business and want to keep that separate, what if you start that business or acquire another potential asset within the marriage that you want to keep separate? Absolutely. You can absolutely plan for that. You can plan for inheritances, for example, to be kept separate. But then you also have to be conscious of keeping them separate. You know, sometimes what happens is people plan for their inheritances to be separate, and then they commingle, essentially mix their inheritances with marital property so that it becomes impossible to essentially thread that needle and pull out that separate inheritance that you had. And so it's really important that not only that you negotiate your prenup or your post-up, but that you read it and that you review it every once in a while, that you dust it off and that you think about what did I have to do to make sure it's enforceable. So yes, you can protect your separate business. You can protect your marital business. You can protect your inheritances. You can protect just about anything. You can also make sure that in the event of your death, that you have protected your family in certain ways. So there are various things that you can do in these prenups and post-ups, and that's why they're so important to think about, negotiate, and to have the time to do that. Excellent advice. Yeah, once the inheritance or your paycheck or any form of money that you earn or entitled to goes into a joint account, that's it. It's a joint account. Is that correct? Sometimes people put it into a joint account for a very short time, right? So maybe somebody actually wanted to move separate property and they closed on a house and there was no other account available and they put it into a joint account. And maybe it sat there for a few weeks or a month or two and then it went into the next house. I think you could probably get what is called a separate property credit for that separate property if it was there for convenience purposes only. Okay. However... If instead you left it there for many years and money has gone in and out of that account and it looks like a glass of water at the end of the day where you essentially are pouring off the water and pouring more water in and the glass of water just looks exactly the same, then you're going to have a problem. Great advice. Great advice. What else do women need to know in general when it comes to prenups? I think that they need to know that, first of all, that they don't have to sign something just because the wedding is really imminent. That's very important. They need to know that they need to protect themselves because it is so important when you sign that prenup and you haven't protected yourself and you haven't thought it out and it's really you wanting to get married so badly, you may be putting yourself in a financial situation that could be life-changing. And not only are you putting yourself in that situation, you may be putting your future children in that situation as well. And you may actually be affecting their lives as well because that lifestyle that you build for them may be something that you can't end up affording. Just because there's going to be child support doesn't mean that that will be sufficient to cover your lifestyle. And so be very careful about signing away assets. Be very careful about signing away spousal support. Make sure that there are ways in which you can ensure your financial safety. 
Excellent. So let's go through our timeline. So now we're moving through our journey and we're now married. It's going well. As the couple begins to accumulate wealth, purchase property, have a family, what do you need to watch for or understand about for future problems? So I think one of the things that you need to watch for is whether or not things are jointly titled, whether or not you have the information of the family's accounts. Can you access it? Are you being put on an allowance? And I hate that word, but sometimes that word actually is appropriate in terms of how you are actually being doled out money. Do you have the same say in the marriage as your spouse? Are you discussing things? You know, a while back, my husband and I actually were interviewed in the Wall Street Journal, and we talked about the fact that we always talk about finances together. We talk about it, frankly, from maybe sometimes the first thing in the morning when we wake up and while we're brushing our teeth and maybe while we're having dinner. It's not that we have this meeting and it's not like we sit down and we we literally meet about it, but it's part of our normal conversation. We share the information. I have all the passwords. He has all the passwords. I can never think that there would be something that I wouldn't have access to. And I can't tell you how many women come into my office and don't have access. That is a problem. They don't even know what their finances are. They haven't looked at their tax returns. Perhaps they weren't shown their tax returns every year. Perhaps those jointly titled tax returns were actually being filed without their knowledge. Somebody may have been signing for them, or they may have just been filed by the accountant and they never looked. They don't know what their spouse is earning. They don't know if everything was properly reported. They don't know if expenses were properly deducted. All of these things are red flags. If somebody is saying to you, no, you don't need to see it, or no, you can't have access to it, or don't bother yourself with it, or it's none of your business, that's a red flag that you really need to do something about. What do you say to women who are just more afraid to ask? They don't want to know everything's kind of going along okay. I don't need to know. And then all of a sudden something happens. That complacency is very dangerous. And I'm going to say that there's not a lot of empathy in the court system for that complacency. And I know that sometimes that happens, that they're afraid or that they don't want to know, or they think it's better if they just leave it alone. But the problem is they are not going to be protected because somebody is going to say to them, well, you should have known, or you should have asked, or you couldn't have, as one judge used to say, just sit on your hands. You actually need to take action. You actually need to speak up for yourself. And if you're not able to do it because you don't know how to be an advocate for yourself, then go and find somebody who can be an advocate for you. Speak to a trusted friend. Speak to a therapist. Speak to a financial advisor. Take your spouse in and sit with a financial advisor. There's a problem if your spouse doesn't want to do that. Have some family therapy where you talk about this issue. Again, a problem if your spouse is shutting that down. Oh, great, great. You've spoken a lot about financial abuse, which I have a feeling that you're talking about. <laughs> Can you explain this more directly and how to identify the signs of financial bullying 
in addition to what you've talked about so far? Yes. So financial abuse, I see it all the time. And it is very disturbing. So it can be anywhere from somebody not having any access to any of the funds and literally being doled at the allowance, as I had spoken about before, somebody being literally cut off from the funds. So they used to have access, but now someone has decided in the, in the marriage that they no longer should have access. And it wasn't a mutual decision, I assure you. Mm. They may not literally have enough money to go get groceries for their family. They may not be able to travel to a job because they may not have access to a car or to funds for transportation, which then cuts off their access to being able to be employed and to being able to earn so that they would have their own financial security. It may be that they work, and this is really stunning to me, but it may be that they actually are the person who is out there supporting the family, and they are told when they come home to make sure to hand over that check or to have that automatic transfer in the other spouse's account, the non-working spouse, so that that non-working spouse controls the money. Wow. And they are then doled out the money as that person sees fit. That is absolutely financial abuse. And we see that. Wow. Financial abuse is not just for women who aren't working. They are sometimes for the breadwinner of the family. And my hunch is, is that it's not like a certain geographical area or a certain level of income. This happens across the board. That is correct. It could be women who have millions of dollars, okay? They just don't know it or they aren't allowed to access it. It could be women who their family is living paycheck to paycheck. It really is not about wealth versus not having wealth. It's really a control. And so it is about somebody wanting to be in control. And I will say from that control, from that financial abuse, often comes, unfortunately, emotional abuse because you don't have the power anymore. If you don't have the financial power in the marriage, if you don't have at least an equal say, then somebody has control over you and they are likely then to abuse you emotionally, physically. We see it all the time. One extends to the other. And again, my hunch is across the board, all ages, both genders, no matter where you live, there's no corralling of it in a certain area or age. Unfortunately, that's really true. Okay. So I just want people to understand that I've had friends that very wealthy come from excellent families abused by their spouse. And you're just like, but wait a second, the entire country knows your family and this is happening. Yes. And it's just just stunning to me. And then there's the other people that I know that live paycheck to paycheck and the same thing is happening, the exact same thing. That's exactly right. It is not confined to people who are living paycheck to paycheck. It is not confined to the wealthy. It is across the board because it isn't really about what the finances are. It is about the need to control someone. There you go. And it is abusive. So they may not be yet physically abusive, but if you can't literally leave the house because you don't have the money to do so, 
if you can't literally go and buy clothing, if you can't actually get your children to daycare because you can't afford the daycare and therefore you can't work, you are literally a prisoner in your home. Exactly, exactly. So what do you need to do when you are being financially bullied or suspect that a close friend or perhaps relative is being financially bullied? So I would say there's a few things. Number one, go to someone who is trusted in this area. So for example, as I said, a financial advisor, a therapist, there are organizations that will help you. So for example, I am on the board of an organization, Savvy Ladies, which actually has a free helpline, which you can be contact and you can be connected with a financial professional who will help answer your financial questions. They will direct you to other organizations if you are being financially abused. That can be helpful to you. There are so many types of organizations that can actually help you if you are being abused, either financially, emotionally, or physically, and you need to reach out. And of course, you can also reach out to an attorney and have a consultation and explain the situation and see what that attorney thinks should happen next. There are a lot of people who are looking to help you. So don't actually stay silent about it and don't feel ashamed about it. There are so many women and men who are going through this situation and you really just need to do something about it and speak up. Lisa, excellent, excellent advice. The other thing I wanted to mention as far as consulting an attorney, just because you consult an attorney doesn't mean you have to hire the attorney, but find out what your legal standing is. Like a financial advisor will give you your financial standing. An attorney can be a great foundation for understanding your legal rights and perhaps different options you can take. So I just really want to throw that out there. That is totally true. You can speak to a variety of attorneys. You need to feel that you are comfortable with an attorney that you are retaining. And I mean really comfortable because that attorney should have your back and you should feel that this is going to be a relationship, that you and your attorney are going to be working on this as a team. That's very, very important. Thank you all for listening to part one of our conversation with Lisa Ziderman. Her information was so poignant that we divided our one-hour interview into two 30-minute segments. For more information about what Lisa discussed today and to join our community, go to our website at singleladyestates.com. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day.